You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 129. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. You've reached another Local Maximum. Welcome to the show. Last week, I played the first part of my summer news update with Aaron on what's happening in our cities. And boy, am I going to be interested in that as I sit here with all my boxes and bubble tape all around me, ready to move to Manhattan. Um, next week, uh, we're, we're going to hear the rest of that conversation where we talk about the troubling political environment in science and engineering, and I'll tell you about it after today's interview. Um, do you remember a time before you could translate sentences online? It's been a while. It's hard to remember that. But every time you got a document or phrase in another language, I guess if you're uh, younger than, oof, I don't know, if you're younger than if you're younger than 25, you might not remember this time, but there wasn't that much you could do about it. Like now we just take it for granted that you could just catch the meaning and the tech has, has developed further ever since. But yeah, you got a document in another language, you're kind of stuck. Um, not anymore. Today's topic is translation technology. I know we've talked about internationalization before, uh, which is you know translating apps into other languages, um, but that's not necessarily automated. And we've talked about natural language processing before, but we haven't talked about translation yet. So that'll be fun. Uh, in, in terms of emerging technology, this particular one is a case study on something that gets built up. Well, I, I don't know how to say it nicely, but translation technology gets built up excruciatingly slow over decades and decades. So year to year, people are skeptical about whether we're making progress or not. But when you look back, it's really quite a lot. But the the path from here to human-level understanding sometime in the future or real text-to-speech like on Star Trek, that is a long path. So I want to talk about that today. Uh, but before I get into that, I want to share a news item in my clippings, which are really just links that I sent to myself. Something that uh, sometimes you find interesting stuff in the obituary section. And uh, this one is... Uh, mathematician Ronald Graham, who died at 84. Now, probably not many of you have heard of Graham, but if you read the article, he has he's done math, he's had results in a lot of fields, but the one that captures the imagination, my imagination at least, probably others, is the number that he came up with. It's called Graham's Number. And it's in the Guinness Book of World Records as the largest number, the largest non-infinite number. Now, obviously, you can't have a largest non-infinite number, but there are root because you could always say, well, I, you know, hey, Graham's number plus one, get me in the Guinness Book World Records. But, you know, you can't do it. So people come up with rules like, no, it actually has to be uh, a number that is that represents something meaningful. So he came up with Graham's number, which does represent something meaningful. Uh, it's not usable like in an engineering sense in any way. I mean, the number is so um, is so huge. It's it's almost even. It almost gets meaningless at a certain point when you talk about these huge numbers in terms of actually having something of that quantity. It just doesn't exist. It's more like the. You're, at that point, you're more talking about the complexity in describing the number, which in this case you actually have to sit down and. I, if I were to explain to you the number, I'd have to sit down with someone and explain it to them for 10, 20, 30 minutes by a, a whiteboard or chalkboard in order to, to define that the number. You know, you can't just. You know, you can't just uh, read the, <laughs> even the number of digits is an astronomically high number. So you can always come up, so um, the, the problem that this number came up with, it was a, a graph theory problem. And 
it's essentially asking like what's the largest number for which this result must be true or what what's the number after which this result must be true it's a, the problem itself is actually kind of simple you can learn it in a few minutes you can learn it on wikipedia or you can link to the new york times article that i found so it's not totally inaccessible to an average person it's more like a uh, think of a a graph which is like a bunch of points connected together and co- and coloring the coloring the edges in a certain way um but yeah, uh, it, when when you're talking in terms of theoretical math, mathematics, and you're like, well, wh- you know, wh- when can this coloring be done in this way, or when can it be done in this way? And you want to know, you know, how many, how big your graph has to be. Um, some of these things come out to it's not infinite, it's not small, but it's some ridiculous, ridiculous number. So really interesting, <laughs> really interesting thing. I would like to know like what, what the more practical applications of these numbers are. But I mean, certainly the problem itself is not totally impractical, but maybe we could talk about that in another time. All right. My next guest has many years of research and practical experience in the field of automated translation and is founder and CTO at Unbabble a company with a multilingual translation platform working to tear down language barriers around the world. Joel Grassa, you've reached the local maximum. Welcome to the show. Thank you. All right. So your company is called Unbabel. You do automated translation. So first, I just want to know, like, what... What is the state of the art in automated translation these days? Maybe define automated translation for people who uh, don't know what it is. And what is, um, you know, what what sort of problems are you working on? Yeah, so basically automated translator or machine translation is basically having a system that given a sentence in one language, uh, it can translate to another language in a quick and fast way. It's actually a very old problem. It started right after the Second World War. Uh, where after Enigma decoded the, the German code, they decided that they could do the same for translation for language. Uh, so it's actually one of the first problems of machine learning and natural language processing uh, yet to be solved. And right now, it's pretty much everything in the field. The best model is a deep learning model called the transformer. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much where we are. What it seems like um, an automated translation system from the 40s and 50s couldn't be very good. <laughs> so, like, what were they trying to do? Uh, I mean, so, no, it was not very good up to a point that uh, there's a famous report that completely kills all the research in that area because the results were really bad. Hmm. But so the idea was very simple. So it was based on the noisy channel model. So the idea is, like, every time I'm speaking something in French, uh, I'm actually saying, or in English in this case, I'm actually saying something in Portuguese, and it's going through the noisy channel. It's, like, corrupting the, the, the signal. Okay. So what I had to recover the original Portuguese. And the model that existed was like, it would go word by word and say, okay, this word in English, what is the most likely translation in Portuguese? Right. And this word in English. And it was basically like word level. And there were some constraints about what was the probability of a word falling in the other one. So those are like the, the first models, which are not that different from the ones that we have now. We're just better at representing words and representing context. Right, so I so it it's it kind of like you know you could look up each word in a uh, two way dictionary like an English French dictionary, uh, but and you can just you know write what the word meanings are side by side. So that's pretty easy to automate. Uh, but then when it comes to the meaning and the um, and the direction of the word and the problem is that like trying to find out the word in context, then it sounds like that's going to be much harder. And <laughs> that that takes us into decades of research. Um, yes. So, 
So, so what's the state of research now? Uh, you know, there have been so many um, breakthroughs in, in machine learning, or at least, you know, machine learning research kind of becoming mainstream over the last decade. So what, what problems are we starting to solve now that we couldn't have solved maybe in 2015 or 2010? Yeah. Uh, I mean, so I think that, um, I'm not being cynical, I don't think we've solved any problems that we couldn't solve before. I think we're solving them slightly better. So the performance level of most of the problems we're solving increase, and then there start being like more useful applications for the problems. So there is like a problem that you can say, okay, this was like a new problem that is like completely solved. You haven't seen it. Right. So, so what are the big pain points in machine translation that, uh, that, are, that are tough to solve? I mean, so first of all, language is super ambiguous. So if you think about a particular word, like the word bank can mean very different things. Right. Um, then when you translate to another language, the word ordering is, uh, is different. So on Japanese, you have the verb at the end, not in the beginning. So you not only have to translate, but now you have to figure out how to reshuffle all of these things. And then language is like, it's very ambiguous. So sometimes you have words that mean different things. Sometimes you have expressions that by themselves in a different thing that are some of the of the words. So that is still a big challenge. And then the search space is huge because of all the different words that you have on a given language. So you have to constrain your models to look very locally. So for instance, even now, the best models for machine translation, they treat every sentence independently. Hmm. So it's like you put something on Google Translate and the tone, like the tone that you get for the sentence is formal informal will be different if you have a pronoun. Right. So it's, oh, so, it's, so it wouldn't know at all what the pronoun is talking about, and it wouldn't know like what the conversation is. And sometimes, you know, the context of the conversation changes the, the meaning of it, uh, even if it's not in the same sentence. Completely. And then, I mean, it can, it can capture like the sentiment of what you're talking about, uh, the domain. So that there's a lot of limitations. And this is just talking for the main languages where you have a lot of parallel data to train the system. If you now try to train the system to Swahili, you don't have data. So low resource languages is pretty much an unsolved problem on natural language processing. Or if you want to do something like Portuguese to German, you're most likely going to do Portuguese to English, English to German, just because of the availability of data. Then you so, get, can you get compounding errors when you do that? You get a little bit of the noisy channel, the, the, the broken phone game. Right, right. What... Um... So there are a couple things I want to ask about in terms of, well, in terms of translation to Swahili, that's interesting. So you said there aren't like, there are some languages where we don't have that much data, but we certainly have some data. We have enough, we, we have human translators in those languages. So um, is there, do you think there's a way to uh, build algorithms that could actually um, build decent translations even when there are less data? Is that something that um, you know, uh, could be researched? Or do you think it's more of a, you know, no, the only way out of this is to just gather more data? No, I mean, there's, well, there's several answers to that question. So the okay. first one is, yes, there's very little data. And I can tell you a little bit about the project we did for crisis translation. You can build models. The problem is like these deep learning models, they require a lot of them. So all the, all the, the thing that you don't have to do feature engineering for these models, the reason you don't have to do it is because you have more data and they can learn these features. So you really need a lot of lots of data. What you do have is you have research on doing these uh, zero-shot models where basically, let's say you train a model to translate from one language to 10 different languages. 
And so what you're trying to do is to compensate and say, okay, I'm going to learn to translate from English to Swahili and three other languages. Right. I'm going to try to learn some language universals so now I can do a better job in Swahili without that much data. And they don't work that well, but they, they work better than not having that at all. The other hand is like, if you really have a small amount of data, you're basically better off potentially using a statistical system, the previous ones, because they, they, they require less data. But that's a very active uh, area of research. Like this is where like Google and Facebook are putting a lot of effort. In, into statistical systems. No, 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 no. Into cover this like low resource languages. Oh, low resource languages, right. Okay. Okay. Service I mean, they're all statistical systems. But <laughs> um, so, okay. Um, what, what applications uh, for, for automated translations would you say are like, yes, we're dead on, we get these applications right now. And are there any like application that people want to use this for? And then they, um, and then they look into the state of the art and they're like, you know, um, the, the, the way automated translation is now with, uh, with, you know, in terms of its accuracy, it just doesn't work for this particular case. Are there any, are there any cases like that? Like, where are we nailing it? And where is it like, you know, it's not good enough for yet? I mean, so it's mostly like machine translation right now still has a lot of critical errors. Uh, so it's definitely not fit for purpose for like uh, business communication with some exceptions. So for instance, it's very useful for you to go personally to travel to a different country and just use a device. And then you can basically, it's better than gesture. It can just like talk. It will right. give us calls. So in a, in a dialogue, it, it can be useful because you can recover from the errors. So, right. you know, is it something if you don't understand and say what? I'll reset a different thing, and you kind of can build up on the conversation. Yeah, so even- I, I've used that for traveling, um, you know, for many years now, almost like you know, eight years probably. Mm-hmm. It's been it's been good enough to like ask the taxi driver where to go and things like that. But if you try to explain the taxi driver how you feel about life because your girlfriend broke up with you, you won't use machine translation. It's like limited to that very simple kind of scenario use case. And it's important to understand the the difficulties to translate an email which is something that we do a lot for customer service. The quality is similar in most cases. So you can understand what the email says, but as a company, you don't want to expose your brand with that translation. So that's why that corrects the errors. Now it does help the humans a lot, and it's been improving a lot. There's also something very interesting, which is with these new models, the translations become much more fluent. So they actually seem like produced by a professional translator, but sometimes they just generate gibberish. So they generate something which is not what's on the source. And that becomes much harder to, to understand because if you just read it, it kind of makes sense. It's just not what was, what was said on the source. Um, so that's an interesting um, challenge with these new models. But overall, you know, emails, uh, chat you can get along with. These personal travel gadgets or communication you can get along with. Uh, emails you're getting better, but there's a lot of applications for chat. So if you think about you go to a hotel and you want to talk with the host in different languages, you can start using this kind of technology and don't have to speak English. Yeah. Uh, okay. So w- one distinction that comes up is natural language processing versus natural language understanding. And you know, from my point of view, I kind of see natural language processing as kind of just largely running statistical algorithms over text. Nothing wrong with that. I do it a lot. I've been very successful at it at, uh, in the Foursquare Text Corpus uh, to try to you know uh, to, to try to build ratings or sentiment and stuff like that, pull out key terms. But I see natural language understanding is where you actually build some 
representation of the true meaning of the text, some semantic representation. Do you think that uh, natural language understanding is necessary for translation to be done right? In other words, do you think there has to be some kind of a, uh, you know, hey, translation from English to some representation of meaning and then some representation of meaning over to Portuguese or some other language? I mean, so that is the that is the holy grail since the fifties. Yeah, uh, it's basically the triangle where you go from a source language to an interlingua, and then you generate. And to also make it much simpler, because you can now use monolingual data and generate every language, the reality has never worked. So even the first layer of the going up the pyramid, which is you go from like the word form to syntax, and you try to use syntax to inform the translation, it never worked. Neither for translation neither for speech recognition. And I don't know, like, I think the question is like, the formalisms are like human made, but you don't see them directly on the data. They're very hard to express and to come up to those models. So, you know, the performance that natural language understanding had had in the past is not that big. And the reason is because it's super hard. We don't understand how to build those models and make them computationally efficient. So right now, all the models, they basically work on the, they just read the words. Now, this is one way of seeing the world. Now, I can give a completely different way of seeing the world, which is you have these like very complex uh, models, this like the cascaded networks, and then you read an entire sentence, and what you're generating is a vector. And then from this vector, you generate a target sentence. This is what you're doing in practice on yeah. a machine. You can claim that this vector is actually the interlingua, and it's getting, it's getting really good results. Now, it's a little bit disappointing because people thought about the interlingual has something that was interpretable. Right. And you just look out, oh, it's a vector of 500 numbers. Here's right, so it's, so it's the, 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 there's, there's some internal representation in some of these models, but we can't actually look under the hood and see what's going on. Yeah, I mean, there's some interesting, so there's like all this algebra of uh, vectors where you say, if I have the vector for king and I subtract the vector for man and I sum the vector for woman, I get the vector that is really close in space to queen. But that's as much as you you get. Yeah. So right. So that's uh, that's like uh, the uh, Google Word to Vec uh, yeah. system. Yeah. So, um, so uh, one question I wanted to ask. I mean, one thing that we noticed when we were doing uh, internationalization of the Foursquare app, and I, I talked about that with my coworker Miriam, who's sometimes a co-host on this program. Uh, on episode two, we we talked about the difficulties of you know, getting our text translated into a lot of different languages. These were human translations, but we, we realized that some languages were a lot harder than others, and um, almost every language posed some unique problem when it came to translation. So do you find that some language pairs are harder uh, in terms of uh, doing automated translation than others, and, and in what way? Well, so... If you exclude the data problem, like do you have enough data for the language pair? I think there's two main the, two main things. One is like the word order. So machine tra like machine translation primes when the order is the same, like English to Spanish. You know, you can go one by word and almost generate word by word. If you now go from English to Japanese, where there's a lot of re reordering, it becomes much harder. And then this has to do with the lookup capability of the models. The other thing is like language with a lot of inflection, it's hard to generate because you have to go from one English word and now understand what's the case, the gender, the number. And so it makes machine translation much harder, not be because of that choice and because the amounts of data that you have to see all potential combinations is much larger. So those two things are normally 
the main reasons for the difficulty of a machine translation system to, to perform well. Cool. Do, do you have some, is there some standard way to rank how accurate machine learning translations are? I, I, I was thinking like how difficult that would be to come up with a number. Well, you know, my, my system performed at a 7.8 and this new one performed at uh, 8.3. Like, I, are, are there any ways to rank the accuracy and, and how do you guys think about that? There's, there's several ways. So, so for, there's an automatic metric. Well, there's actually a lot of automated metrics that score the quality of a translation. And the way they do it is you have a source text, you translate it, and then you have a true translation, and you compare it to distance, some sort of distance against it. And so this is how you train these systems. You need a metric to train, and this is the metric you use. Um, and so and there's, a, there's like a, a research track just on getting better metrics that correlate with human judgment. And there are numbers from zero to one. So you can say, well, my blue score is now 60% and it used to be 52. Now, can you as a human being understand what that 60-52 means? It's harder, you can say it's... And then there's another, which is like human judgment. So for instance, what we do at Unbevel, we have this, um, this, we use this method called MQM, that's for multidimensional quality metric, which is an industry standard, where basically you ask a professional linguist to look at the source text and the translation and mark all the errors that are on the translation and group them if like if they're minor, major, or critical. So critical means you can the, the meaning is different from the source. Major means it's the same meaning, but it's hard to understand. And minor is normally a linguistic detail. So and they, you, yeah, so it sounds like they're having they have qualitative um, uh, judgments and now you're aggregating them. Yes. And you send them like you weight them for like a critical measure minor. And then to mark the errors, you have this typology saying this is grammar, this is syntax, this is domain, this is sentiment. And so it's a laboratory, it's a, it's a hard process. But at the end of the day, you get the value from zero to 100. And normally what you say is like above 90 is considered professional quality. Uh, and obviously this is very subjective because it depends if you're talking about a chat, an email, a, a marketing piece, but you have a number and you can see the improvement of machine translation over time. You can see the delta that you have from having humans on top of the machine translation. So it gives you like, it's a really well good way to measure quality. So you said it's it's zero to one hundred and ninety is professional level. Uh, that's professional human level is ninety. Yes. So where have any machine uh, translation systems uh, gotten to ninety, or where are they at now? I mean, I can tell you about my personal experience. They okay. On average, you don't get to ninety. They'll be like on sixty, and this is for easy content types like emails. They'll be on the sixty, sixty something. There are some some examples where they get to ninety, like text that is that is like it just works very well for that engine. Some of them it gets really bad, but it's it's been improving a lot. It could it would be around thirty for the statistical systems, and now it's getting much better. Gotcha, gotcha. So I I would have thought that with automated translation technology, I'd be having more non-English conversations uh, these days. And, you know, sometimes maybe with customer service text, you know, back and forth, I'm kind of translating with Google Translate. But um, I feel like I'm not, uh, I was playing a game online the other day and somebody was, uh, you know, uh, someone was uh, trolling me in German and I had to translate uh, what he was saying. And he was saying nasty things to me, but, uh, I beat him in the game, so it's okay. Uh, <laughs> but uh, what, what, what do you think are the main applications today? Because um, I feel like 
I personally wish I could use it more to like have more international conversations, but that seems uh, it it seems almost as as difficult. Uh, maybe it's not a translation problem. Maybe it's just a uh, an interface problem. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think that so first thing like you're lucky that you also speak English. If you didn't speak English, if you basically only spoke let's say Portuguese, then you use translation technology much more, especially if you're traveling. Right. Right. I think like for that kind of scenario, like traveling, easy conversations, the technology is that it, it's fit for purpose. You know, it might take you slightly a little bit longer, but it's definitely easier that, than not having it. Um, so on all scenarios like, like that, it is becoming more and more useful. Um, it is very useful for, for first responders. So if there's a catastrophe somewhere and you have to go there and you now have to talk with the local people, normally the first responders do not come from the country where the people are, so that's a different language. Like the earthquake on Tahiti was an amazing example where Microsoft was able to develop on the fly some engines that actually save lives. Um, so I think there's a lot of like scenarios that always related with like traveling or security or something that you have to go to another country and interact with people. More yeah. on the form like, uh, am I going to use machine translation to translate my website or my blog uh, to 20 languages to capture the audience? It's not there yet. I wouldn't do it. Right, right. Like, I, so I'm working on some transcripts for this podcast, and I mean, and anyone's obviously free to tra- take the transcripts and put it through their favorite translation engine and see what comes out. But I don't know what will come out. So, what what, what do you think it looks like when this technology is deployed more broadly? Uh, what do you think uh, the effect is on? society and business um what uh, let's say over the next 10 20 years how will my life be changed or maybe someone well <laughs> when uh, assuming we're, we're going to be traveling more uh you know hopefully <laughs> soon because <laughs> right now uh, traveling is a little bit tough but um what what do you think this looks like in the future let's just start let's just start I, first thing i think is like it's going to be a more inclusive world yeah be able to communicate more. I think like, so the vision of Umbrella being like the translation layer is think about it. You go to some website, so you go to like some mobile app and you're just talking on your language. You don't even stop to think that there's a language issue. The same way that when you want to go to Google, you don't think about the IP address because there's a, a layer that converts that. Right. You just go to any site and everything is basically on your language. Yeah, so that would be great. Like, uh, it's transparent. It's like, it's seamless. At the same time, you walk with your mobile phone or actually with like the some device and you just talk. And basically all this language disappears. And so learning the language becomes a hobby, not a necessity. Right. Well, that would be great. Um, there, there are some challenges, though, like um, when we were translating, and this is not really about language, but uh, when we were translating the Foursquare we realized that there were some, you know, there were some like inside jokes that only work for let's say a TV show that was in the United States or a TV show that was in English. And it's like, okay, we really, we could translate that sentence word for word, but it really wouldn't make sense. No, but that, but that is part for me of the translation problem is the cultural translation. Yeah. It's something like you're translating like customer service for Japanese, where the culture is very different. Like the tone is super important, super specific. And so even the way that you write your original English has to be changed so that it translates properly. So when the technology is solved, it will pick up those details and do a proper translation. So that was kind of like this fixed expression of jokes 
it will know how to translate them. It will convey the same. So right now, you can be very, write a message that is you're very annoyed, and you translate it. It comes out like in the other language, but you're not annoyed anymore because it didn't convey the sentiment. This is part of solving the problem. Yeah, I, I almost feel like there has to be in some situations, you know, could translate automatically, but in other situations, it has to, you know, go back to the author and say, hey, um, you know. There's only there are a few ways I can convey this on the other side, and it has very different meanings, uh, or very different like, you know, sentiments uh, depending on how I convey it. Uh, and it just you know in your in your home language, uh, the 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 richness of of the language you're translating you're translating in doesn't really match the one of your home language. So you've got to make a decision here. Yeah, definitely. And maybe uh, I mean, if the author isn't available, can make a decision on its own, but sometimes... Like, I remember um, there was an example on my first natural language processing book about machine translation, which is like, if you talk about God, like God is a, is a shepherd, how do you translate that to a culture that don't have sheep? They don't have the concept of shepherd. Um, so all that cultural thing, but ideally, I mean, from my I mean, point of view... Yeah, it could be shepherd, which, by the way, is... Uh, somebody who herds sheep, and a sheep is that it could explain the whole thing, or it could come up with a new metaphor entirely. But if you solve the problem that you're talking about of natural language understanding, ideally you will be able to solve this thing because the system yeah. will, will bring it up to like the semantic meaning and now know how to generate it on the appropriate culture. But I, I, we're very far from there. Yeah, I feel like that would almost have to be. Uh, like a general AI problem, it would have to understand the world at a at a pretty high level. Yeah, if, supposedly if you solve general AI, you solve language. And vice <laughs> yeah, versa. Oh, vice versa, maybe too. Yeah. Um, all right. So, uh, w tell me a little bit about like what's the uh, w what's the sort of uh, tech stack, particularly in terms of machine learning, that you're using these days. What are your uh, what techniques are you um, finding the most um, uh, success with, and, um, and and how are you using them? Yeah, well, mostly well, deep learning right now. You know, that's kind of the universal hammer. Um, there are some very interesting models based on these uh, big language models like Bird GPT two, uh, where you basically keep this large model and then just train the decoder part to use them. Uh, we're using mostly Python, uh, except for the machine translation. Uh, so for most of the AI, we're using Python and PyTorch, and we contribute to that. And we build our models on top of PyTorch, like uh, our Qualtex simulation, our MT metrics. And then for machine translation, we're actually using a module on the C++ because it was more efficient uh, on decoding without it, which is basically something important for obvious cost reasons. Uh, but that's basically like the, the tech stack, stack. And we're now working a lot on automating all of these processes. Basically, you know, press a button, you can train the model for all your customers. Uh, every customer has their own model that keeps getting retrained every week. So all this automation and metrics and logging is something that we, we put a lot of effort on. Yeah, there's a lot of like data engineering that has to go in the background for a lot of these systems. Yeah, true. All right. Well, this is a fascinating discussion, Joao. Thanks, Say, uh, Do you have any last thoughts? And where can people go to check out more about you and your company? No, I think this is a very interesting uh, conversation. I mean, company, they can go to www.unbevel.com. Uh, me, LinkedIn, or just uh, send me an email at schwan.unbevel.com.
Okay, great. I'll uh, I'll link to it on the show notes page for this episode. Joao, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks a lot. All right, check out the show notes for this episode at localmaxradio.com slash 129. I'll link uh, to Joao and I'll link to uh, Unbabel. But I, I also have to link to Translator Fails. I know we've done that before, but these songs are hilarious when uh, she puts them through all the different languages. And let's, what is this one? Africa by Toto. Let's see. Okay, <laughs> that's enough of that. You probably can't hear it. You get the real thing uh, on, on YouTube. I'll link to that as well. Um, ah, gotta have something to do today. It's like 97 degrees out there. Next week on 1.30, Aaron and I are going to talk about an article in the Wall Street Journal called The Ideological Corruption of Science by physicist Lawrence Krauss. And also, we have some updates on the latest AI models, those, those GANs, those generated adversarial networks that are creating images of faces and people that look real but aren't. And we covered that before, but now you better believe it's already being used to fool people and trick the media into sharing doctored news stories. So remember to subscribe so that you don't miss it. I am moving back to Manhattan this week, so I'm happy that it's already recorded. Uh, I hope my week goes extra well. And yours too. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com if you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show. Send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. The show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power.